Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 18. Misconstruing Federal Theology. A review of David A. Weir's The Origin of the Federal Theology in 16th Century Reformation Thought. Oxford, The Clarendon Press, 1990. I am seldom as engrossed after reading the first few pages of a book as I was upon first picking up this fascinating book. From an historical point of view, I found this book very informative and useful and highly stimulating. Unfortunately, there are some serious errors in it which tend to vitiate the author's thesis, and this makes the book disappointing ultimately. In the introduction, Weir states the subject matter clearly on the first page. Quote, in the past century, there has been much discussion of the 16th and 17th century concept of covenant and what relation it has to Protestant dogmatics. One of the basic theological shifts in those centuries was the manner in which Reformed Protestant theologians of Northern Europe divided biblical times. Whereas John Calvin, 1509-1564, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, spoke of an old covenant which extended from after the fall of Christ, and then of a new covenant which extended from Christ to the Day of Judgment. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written 80 years later, spoke of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. There were basic differences between these two concepts, differences which affected the way Calvinists thought and acted. End quote. The purpose of this book is to trace out the origin and early development of the federal theology that led to this shift of emphasis among Reformed theologians, which was later given the stamp of orthodoxy by the divines of the Westminster Assembly, and to show some of the far-reaching implications that it had for Puritan theology and thought, particularly with regard to the Puritan understanding of the church-state relationship. The distinctive feature of federal theology is the prelapsarian covenant, or covenant of works between God and Adam, as the federal head of the race, established before the fall. Zacharias Ursinus was the first Reformed theologian to postulate this idea. Before Ursinus, Reformed covenant theology had dealt exclusively with the post-lapsarian world and the covenant of grace. From Ursinus on, however, there was a shift among Reformed theologians from an old covenant stroke new covenant distinction to a distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, that is, between the prelapsarian and postlapsarian covenants. According to Weir, there were two stages in the growth of the federal theology. Quote, the first in 1561-3, as Ursinus first proposes the idea, the second in 1584-90, when the idea becomes accepted 
and becomes integrated into the theological thinking of Reformed systematic theologians. The first in 1561 to 3, as Ursinus first proposes the idea, the second in 1584 to 1590, when the idea becomes accepted and becomes integrated into the theological thinking of Reformed systematic theologians. End quote, page 36. Four theologians especially played an important role in the spread of federal theology. Caspar Olivianus, Thomas Cartwright, Dudley Fenner and Franciscus Junius. After 1590, the prelapsarian covenant idea becomes so widespread that it is no longer possible to establish connections between theologians using it. Weir states that there is much confusion about what is meant by, quote, federal theology, end quote, quote, covenant theology, end quote, and the, quote, covenant idea, end quote, which has led some, quote, to trace the origins of the shift from a post-lapsarian covenant schema to a pre-lapsarian slash post-lapsarian covenant schema to earlier periods in history than can be warranted, end quote, page 3. Having noted W. Adams Brown's distinction between the covenant idea and the covenant theology, Weir goes on to explain these three terms. Quote, the covenant idea is a common inheritance of the Judeo-Christian tradition found in the Bible. In recent decades, the meaning of covenant has been expanded to include a much richer Near Eastern conception of commitment. Covenant theology grows out of the covenant idea. Covenant theology is a theological system in which the covenant forms the basic framework and acts as the controlling idea in that theological system. Almost all Christian theologians ultimately practice some form of covenant theology in that they must somehow distinguish themselves as Christians and not as believers under the Old Testament dispensation. Martin Luther, for instance, saw this distinction in terms of law and gospel. John Calvin described it in terms of Old Testament and New Testament. The federal theology is a specific type of covenant theology in that the covenant holds together every detail of the theological system and is characterised by a prelapsarian and a post-lapsarian covenant schema centred around the first Adam and the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, end quote, page 3. Thus, quote, the federal theology in this book refers to the doctrine that God, immediately after creating Adam, made a covenant with Adam before his fall into sin, end quote, page 3. Furthermore, as we are writes, quote, part of the covenant before the fall involves the giving of the moral law, the Decalogue, to Adam, and laying it on his heart. In his perfect estate, Adam knew the moral law perfectly and obeyed it perfectly. End quote, page 4. Finally, quote, This covenant was binding upon all men at all times, in all places, both before and after the fall, by virtue of their descent from Adam. If Adam had not fallen, his children would have been obliged to keep the Prelapsarian Covenant, end quote, page 4. As we shall see, there are some problems here with Weir's understanding of the covenant of works in federal theology. Weir quotes extensively from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, at a later date, 1647, sets forth the federal theology schema in a clear manner. He then sums up the federal theology of the confession, quote, 
Thus, we see that the classical distinctions between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Mosaic Covenant and the Christian New Covenant are subsumed under one covenant, the post-Lapsarian Covenant of Grace, and that the new element in Calvinist thinking is that of the pre-Lapsarian Covenant of Works. In the federal schema, the Covenant of Grace now consists of Jesus Christ, the Covenant Keeper, keeping and fulfilling the pre-Lapsarian Covenant of Works as the second Adam. Christ takes Adam's place as the obedient God-man and fulfills the pre-Lapsarian Covenant where Adam failed. This was known as the active obedience of Christ. Furthermore, Christ takes upon himself the punishment, anger and wrath of God which Adam deserves for his disobedience, even though Christ was sinless. This was known as the passive obedience of Christ. This gracious work of redemption was then applied to the elect of God's sovereign choice. End quote. Page 5. Weir then makes the following important comment, quote, The post-lapsarian covenant of grace is really therefore the pre-lapsarian covenant of works in disguise, but a new Adam, Christ, was needed to keep the covenant which God had established with man at the beginning of the world. Once the pre-lapsarian covenant of works is established, it can never be broken, that is, abrogated, SCP, end quote. Thus, in the federal theology, the substance of the prelapsarian covenant made with Adam, the first man and federal head of humanity, and the postlapsarian covenant made with Christ as the mediator and federal head and representative of his people is the same. But whereas Adam fell and broke the covenant, plunging the whole race into condemnation, Christ, the last Adam, fulfills the covenant perfectly and redeems God's elect who, through faith, are members of the new race, the family of God by the adoption in Christ, by his active and passive obedience, that is, his substitutionary life and propitiatory death on their behalf. Just as the whole race fell in Adam, that is to say, because of the covenant solidarity between the members of Adam's race, so likewise the Christian is redeemed because, in Christ, he is united covenantally, with the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly as his representative and federal head and discharged the debt that he owed but could never have paid. Christians are saved in Christ, that is, because of the covenant solidarity between Christ and his people. Quote, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Next, we are consider some of the implications of this federal theology and, in particular, its implications for a post-medieval Christian doctrine of the state. Quote, The first aspect of the federal theological system that we should notice is that the prelapsarian covenant of works binds all men before and after the fall. Each man and woman will stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the basis of whether or not he or she has obeyed the covenant of works. While, because of Adam's fall, no one can be totally obedient to its stipulations, nevertheless, each man is bound to them. The ramifications of this are extremely important, though the idea of all men being required to obey the covenant of works through Adam versus some men enjoying the covenant of grace through Christ 
one now had a potential basis for the state, the state being the government of all men, could be founded on the covenant of works and the law of God, whereas the church could be founded on the covenant of grace, the state could be entrusted with enforcing the law of God. End quote. Page 5 following. This is not strictly correct, however. It is only the abiding validity of the law, its jurisdiction over all men, believer and non-believer alike, not the covenant of works, which in Puritan theology provides the moral basis for the state. As we shall see, we are here fundamentally misunderstands and misconstrues an important element in early Reformed and Puritan theology by identifying the covenant of works as coterminous with the law. Weir notes next that the federal theology, because it treats man as a legal creature from the beginning, God's law being written on the heart of man in a state of perfection, reinforced Calvinistic antipathy towards antinomianism. Quote, the final aspect which we should note about the covenant of works, end quote, the author continues, quote, is that it becomes, in some sense, the primary covenant that God has made with man. The Adamic relationship of perfection in Eden takes on greater weight than the Abrahamic relationship of grace. Grace is, as it were, a remedy to correct creation's fall into sin. The eschatological importance of the covenant of works thus becomes significant. Man is being restored, after the day of judgment, to the relationship which he enjoyed with God prior to the fall, with some differences. The federal theologians thus interpreted Jeremiah 31-34 in as, in some sense, a return to the covenantal state of Eden, where the law of God will be written on the hearts of the redeemed elect. End quote. Page 6 following. In an important note, Weir observes that, quote, J. F. Benninga, in Covenant Theology and Ethics in the Thought of John Calvin and John Preston, unquote, is less than accurate when he tries to explain the ethical consequences of the federal theology. Quote, With man's sin, the covenant of works becomes obsolete, although the obligatory ethic associated with it continues its validity as the standard of conduct for the regenerate, unquote, page 203. He goes on to maintain that the theology of Calvin and the federal theology are virtually the same, end quote. Note 17, page 39. This, argues Weir, is incorrect. Quote, what Wenginga fails to realise is, a, the significance of the fact that Calvin never taught the idea of a prelapsarian covenant or covenant of works, and b, that the federal theologians believed that the covenant of works was binding upon all men, regenerate and unregenerate, after the fall, and that they are obliged to keep it, whether they are members of the church or not. Such a mandate affects an ethical system drastically. Ibid, page 40. But neither is Weir correct here. In federal theology, the covenant of works remains binding upon all members of Adam's race outside of Christ, but not upon believers who stand in a totally new covenant relationship to God. In fact, Wenginger is much nearer the truth since some Reformed theologians maintain that the covenant of works was disannulled at the fall and set aside 
Compare Robert Shaw's Exposition of the Confession of Faith, page 193. And in some sense, it might be argued that the covenant of works was disannulled since man's communion with God has been broken by sin and man cannot now, in that state of sin, enjoy the benefits of that covenant fellowship with God, nor can he, by his works, merit God's favour. Yet, in another sense, the covenant of works is clearly not disannulled, since, as a sinner, man is subject to the covenant sanction, which remains in force for all of Adam's posterity, unless and until, through faith, they are united with Christ in a new covenant relationship with God by means of grace. Thus, it is more correct to say that the covenant of works remains in force after the fall, but that man's relationship with God and his legal standing under the covenant of works has been altered by the entrance of sin. As a sinner, man stands convicted of transgressing the covenant and is thus subject to the sentence of God's law, that is, the covenant sanction, death. In Christ, however, that sentence has been discharged fully for the elect by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, and the believer is thus delivered from the guilt and condemnation of Adam's original sin, as well as all personal sins, and restored to covenant fellowship with God. The covenant of works thus consists of three parts, life, that is, fellowship with God, the promise, man's obedience, the condition, and the sanction for disobedience, death. To this, most, though not all, Reformed theologians have added the renewal of eternal life for obedience. See the sum of saving knowledge, 1, 2, but compare Westminster Confession of Faith, 19.1, in which eternal life is not mentioned. This latter is an inference from Scripture, however, not an explicit statement. Disobedience has rendered the promise unattainable. Yet, man is still bound by the covenant sanction. Furthermore, it is clear from Scripture that all three elements of the covenant of works remain in force formally after the fall, since life is promised to those who fulfil the condition, that is, perfect obedience to the law. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5 Romans chapter 10 verse 5, Galatians 3 verse 12, Galatians chapter 3 verse 12, though, in fact, no one of Adam's fallen race is capable of fulfilling that condition on account of his being born in sin, and thus by nature inclined to rebel against God. Christ, however, was born sinless and fulfilled the condition as the federal head and representative of God's elect, the new race as well as suffering the penalty for their transgressions, thereby discharging their debt and accomplishing in himself their redemption. In doing this, however, Christ has brought the believer into a new covenant relationship with God based not on works, but grace operating through faith. Thus, most Puritans and Reformed theologians considered the covenant of works to be binding on men outside of Christ, Those who are in Christ, that is, under the covenant of grace, however, are no longer under the covenant of works, Thomas Brooks writes. There are are but two famous covenants that we must abide by. In one of them, all men and women in the world must of necessity be found, either in the covenant of grace 
or the covenant of works. No man can be under both these covenants, end quote. Works, volume 5, page 303. Quotations from Puritan writings to this effect could be multiplied. Of course, the law remains binding upon believers as a rule of life, Westminster Confession of Faith, 19.6. Furthermore, the believer, under the covenant of grace, is redeemed in Christ in order that he might walk in the good works that God has ordained for man before the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 But to say that the covenant of works remains binding on regenerate believers is to use a terminology that is not found in federal theology. Since, under the covenant of works, man must be justified by his own works of righteousness, and this is incompatible with the believer's justification on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Whether, and to what extent, the use of the terminology of a covenant of works is valid or useful in describing man's continuing duty to obey God's law will depend upon what precisely is meant by it, but it is not the usage of the federal theologians or Puritans. Such terminology would, moreover, seem to be fraught with problems and, at the very least, likely to be severely misunderstood. It would have been helpful if Weir had given citations from primary sources to support his argument, but unfortunately these are conspicuously absent on this point. However, among some federal theologians, there were differences over the point to some degree with regard to the Mosaic Covenant. John Owen, for example, did not view the Mosaic dispensation of the Covenant of Grace as did most Reformed theologians from Calvin on, but rather as a particular temporary covenant in which the covenant of works was renewed, but in which there was relief provided against the believer's inability to yield perfect obedience. An exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews, Gould edition, volume 2, page 389, and volume 6, pages 77 and 86. According to Sinclair B. Ferguson, for Owen, quote, The substance of the covenant of works was renewed in the Sinaitic covenant, but the form of that renewal was changed. It was now given to a people that were under the covenant of grace, though not yet in the new covenant. The substance of the covenant of works is God's will for man, as man, and in that sense, unalterable. John Owen on the Christian life, Banner of Truth, 1987, page 53. But this is still a long way from Weir's claim that the covenant of works binds the non-believer and believer alike. In spite of his statements that, quote, part of the covenant before the fall involves the giving of the moral law, end quote, page 4, Weir does not subsequently seem to distinguish between the law and the covenant of works and confuses the binding validity of the former as a rule of life for all men, even believers, with the idea that all men, including believers, are under a covenant of works. In the Federal Theology of the Westminster Assembly, the law binds man, as God's creature, to God's moral standards of perfection. But obedience to that law did not in itself merit eternal life until God entered into covenant with Adam and promised eternal life on condition of obedience. According to the Sum of Saving Knowledge, 1.2, 
The covenant of works is the contract in which God promised eternal life on condition of obedience and is distinguishable from the duty to render perfect obedience to God's law, which binds all men regardless of any promise on God's part. As far as I understand, we are here, he has erroneously identified the law with the covenant of works, treating the two as coterminous. But this is incorrect. The law is relevant to both covenants. And, as far as I understand we are here, he has erroneously identified the law with the covenant of works, treating the both as coterminous. But this is incorrect. The law is relevant to both covenants. But, in the covenant of works, it appears as a rule of life and as a means of justification and merit, whereas in the covenant of grace, it appears as a rule of life only, justification being through faith in Christ. This does raise, however, a very interesting and important question. As we have seen, Weir notes that the federal theology strongly reinforced Calvinistic antipathy towards antinomianism and its extreme logical conclusion, libertinism, page 6. Calvin was of course strongly against such antinomianism, but later Puritan theology was much more self-conscious and consistent on this point than Calvin and the early reformers. Why? The logic of Weir's argument would lead us to conclude that it was the development of federal theology that made the difference. Weir gives as an example of this change, especially as it was worked out in the doctrine of the state, the change in the interpretation of the fourth commandment that occurred between Calvin and later Puritanism. Quote, Most federal theologians came to the conclusion that all people, both members and non-members of the church, must keep the Sabbath, and that this commandment should be enforced by the state. The Sabbath issue rises to the forefront concurrently with the rise of the federal theology between 1590 and 1640, and it seems that extreme Sabbatarianism had its roots in the federal theology. Weir here assumes that because the two rose to prominence at the same time, they were linked. This is not so, however, or at least it has not been shown to be so by Weir. Two points need to be made here. First, it is not logically necessary to conclude that federal theology commits one to Sabbatarianism, even if it could be shown that there was an historical link, since Sabbatarianism can be critiqued even from within a federal theology framework. Indeed, I would argue that Sabbatarianism, as distinct from Sabbath-keeping, however, is necessarily problematic for a consistently developed federal theology, since it ties certain ceremonial elements of the Mosaic dispensation to the creation ordinance, thus blurring the distinction between the pre- and post-Lapsarian covenants. This discussion is beyond Weir's point, however. Secondly, as already noted, the Puritans did not see the covenant of works as binding on believers. They did, however, see the moral law as binding on all, and also the equity of the Mosaic judicial law as binding upon society. It was not their doctrine of the prelapsarian covenant of works that led to Sabbatarianism, therefore, but their particular interpretation of the fourth commandment, along with their belief that the equity of the Mosaic judicial law still bound the civil magistrate. 
Where attributes too much importance to the prelapsarian covenant of works generally, and particularly in his understanding of the Puritan doctrine of the state, we must look for the rationale for Puritan Sabbatarianism and theonomy in something other than the prelapsarian covenant of works, therefore. Puritan theonomy and the Puritan doctrine of the civil magistrate find their basis in the Puritan understanding on the abiding validity of God's law, quite apart from the doctrine of the prelapsarian covenant of works. Weir maintains that the federal theology schema of biblical history has extensive implications. Some of these have not yet been explored, but most came to fruition in the 17th century. One implication Weir touches on relates to the doctrine of creation. Quote, As a consequence of this transformation of thought, there is a shift in the importance of certain loci of Scripture. The doctrine of creation and the relationship between Adam and Christ took on greater importance. While exegetes continue to discuss the importance of the covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses and David as aspects of the post-Lapsarian covenant of grace, there was now a place for a doctrine of nature and a theology of creation. Creation and redemption each had its proper place. Christianity spoke both to the areas of the created world and to the areas of grace and redemption. The federal theologian now had the potential for a basic worldview, which includes, quote, nature, unquote, and, quote, grace, unquote. According to this schema, most men live only under nature, but the redeemed live under both the spheres of nature and grace. Areas such as science, politics, law, and logic had roots in the covenant of works, page 7. Here Weir touches on the area of science and in the conclusion he suggests that the federal theology had significant implications for the subsequent rise of science in the 17th and 18th centuries. Unfortunately, Weir never develops this in any detail and refers mainly to the doctrine of the state for examples of the implications of the federal theology. Quote, At times, the covenant of works was called the natural covenant or the covenant of creation. Theology and religious activity could be related to the covenant of grace. Ideally, the categories were not to conflict. For example, the church-state problem is a major consideration at this juncture, but both should complement and assist each other, and both were under God and his law. There would come a time in the new heavens and the new earth, the eschaton, where there would be no conflict between the two spheres, because the sphere of grace will have restored fallen nature to its original perfection. End quote. Page 7. These examples of the implications of federal theology for the doctrine of the state are intriguing. It would, however, have been helpful also if other examples had been given, particularly in the areas of science and logic. There may also be a problem here with the statement that, quote, theology and religious activity could be related to the covenant of grace, unquote, if some separation between the sacred and the secular, similar to the medieval schema, is being proposed. Science and logic are intensely religious disciplines in one sense, though not theological disciplines in the strict sense. However, 
it is not clear that this is being suggested. The reference could be to the religious cultus and theology proper. As we are says, quote, Christianity spoke both to the areas of the secret world and to the areas of grace and redemption, end quote. And later he points out that the reformers broke with the domestic nature-grace schema, page 24. More importantly, Weir suggests that the federal theology provided a basis for the reconstruction of northern European society and culture, quote, With the loss of the traditional institutions of the church and its sacraments, and the demise of canon law, northern European society was searching for an adequate base for its social ethic. How could men be forced to live a Christian lifestyle when you were not sure that they were under the covenant of grace and that their hearts were turned unto the Lord? End quote. Page 7 following. As Weir points out, the medieval answer was to include all men under grace by means of the sacraments and church membership. As long as men partook of the sacraments and were faithful church members, they were considered saved. The reformers rejected this. As Nicholas Tiaki commented, quote, At this period, the degree of emphasis placed by an English theologian on predestination was usually in inverse proportion to that which he put on baptism, thus bearing out Mox Weber's dictum that, quote, Every consistent doctrine of predestined grace inevitably implied a radical and ultimate devaluation of all magical, sacramental and institutional distributions of grace in view of God's sovereign will, end quote. Indeed, the grace of predestination and the grace of the sacraments were to become rivals for the religious allegiance of English men and women during the early 17th century, end quote. Anti-Calvinists, Oxford, Clarendon Press, 1990, page 10. But if not all men could be included in the church as a result of the rejection of a sacramental and institutional view of grace in favour of a predestinarian view of grace, how was the church to claim moral authority and how was the Christian state to find legitimacy for its decrees and rule over non-believers? It is here that the federal theology provided a new basis for the Christian doctrine of the state, according to Weir. Quote, Not all men had hearts turned unto the Lord, yet the Protestant wanted all men to live godly lives. One possible solution for the Reformed camp was to adopt the idea of the covenant of works, which bound all men to keep the law of God through Adam, and yet did not place them, perhaps falsely, in the realm of grace. End quote. Page 8. Again, however, it is Weir's identification of the law with the covenant of works which leads him to this conclusion. As a result, he claims too much for the prelapsarian covenant of works. It was the Puritan belief that the law remained binding on all men, regenerate and unregenerate alike. Again, however, it is Weir's identification of the law with the covenant of works which leads him to this conclusion. As a result, he claims too much for the prelapsarian covenant of works. It was the Puritan belief that the law remains binding on all men, regenerate and unregenerate alike, that provides the basis for the state. Though all men are under a covenant of works in Adam, they are delivered from the covenant upon conversion by union with Christ, which places them under the covenant of grace. 
The law continues to bind them as a rule of life, however. In federal theology, the abiding validity of the law is a separate issue from the covenant of works. All men are required to keep the law, and the state is a divinely appointed institution for enforcing God's law in the judicial sphere. The requirement to obey God's law is logically and historically distinct from the idea of a covenant of works. Weir next looks at theological conceptions of the covenant prior to the development of the federal theology. Although in Calvin's doctrine of the covenant, the two testaments are the same in substance and reality and differ only in administration, according to Weir, Calvin makes no mention of the prelapsarian covenant with Adam. There is evidence, however, claims Weir, that, quote, at least to a certain degree, Calvin considered the Edenic relationship with God and Adam to be covenantal in nature, end quote, page 10. This evidence Weir finds in Calvin's view of the sacraments, quote, For Calvin, a sacrament is a sign of a covenant between God and man, end quote. Sometimes sacraments are miraculous and sometimes natural. Calvin cites the Tree of Life in Eden as an example of a natural sacrament. Institutes 4, 16.18 Since a sacrament is a sign of a covenant, the Edenic relationship between God and Adam must therefore be covenantal in nature. This is an inference from Calvin's doctrine, however, and the covenantal nature of the Edenic state is not explicitly stated by Calvin, nor does he refer to a covenant of works with Adam. Likewise, according to Weir, Willinger, although he gives the covenant idea a central place in his theology, makes no reference to a prelapsarian covenant with Adam. At least two theologians did propose a prelapsarian covenant before Eusinus, however. These were Augustine and Ambrosius Catharinus, 1487-1553. According to Weir, only Augustine, among the fathers of the Church, spoke of a prelapsarian covenant, quote, Actually, for Augustine, unquote, he writes, quote, it was a prelapsarian testament in his Civitas Dei, book 16, chapter 27. Augustine makes one very short reference to a first covenant. But the first covenant made with the first man is certainly this. On the day you eat, you shall surely die. This is placed in the context of a discussion of the Abrahamic covenant and its relationship to circumcision, in which the question of infant salvation is brought forward. End quote. Page 12 following. For Augustine, the infant has original sin because in Adam he has broken the covenant that God made with Adam. The idea is not developed further by Augustine, however. This question came up again at the Council of Trent in 1546. According to Paoli Sarpi, who had access to the records of the Council and who wrote a history of the Council of Trent, 1619, Ambrosius Catharinus, a nominalist theologian troubled by the realist view of the transmission of sin, suggested that just as God had made a covenant with Abraham, he had also made a covenant with Adam. We are cites Sorby's history, quote, And he explained his opinion in this form, that as God made a covenant with Abraham and all his posterity, 
when he made him father of the faithful, so when he gave original righteousness to Adam and all mankind, he made him seal an obligation in the name of all to keep it for himself and them, observing the commandments which, because he transgressed, he lost it as well as for others as himself and incurred the punishments also for them, the which, as they are derived into every one, so the very transgression of Adam belonged to everyone, to him as the cause, to others by virtue of the covenant, so that the action of Adam is actual sin in him and imputed to others, is original, because when he sinned, all mankind did sin with him, end quote, cited on page 14. Although Ambrosius corroborated his argument with citations from Augustine himself, as well as scripture, he was opposed by Petrus de Soto, who maintained the Augustan realist doctrine that all men are guilty because they were in Adam when he sinned, and not simply represented by Adam covenantally when he sinned. The difference between these two views can perhaps be summed up by saying that, for the Augustinians, all men are guilty because they inherit sin, whereas, in the covenantal view, all men inherit sin because they are guilty, that is, constituted sinful, on account of Adam's sin. It is not known whether Reformed theologians in the late 16th century were aware of this discussion, but Weird does not think that the context of Ambrosius' teaching, that is, the transmission of original sin, was what led to the proposal and adoption of a prelapsarian covenant of works by Reformed theologians. Rather, he sees this development as a result of the predestination controversy, and particularly the superlapsarian, infralapsarian dimension of that controversy. It is Weir's contention that, quote, the idea of the covenant of works, or prelapsarian covenant, was introduced by Reformed theologians to help resolve this question of God's providence and Adam's original sin. May quote, page 22. Calvin and the Reformers had affirmed both the absolute sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Thus, although all things happen according to God's inscrutable will, God is not the author of sin, and man must bear the responsibility for his own conduct. But, according to Weir, quote, when Theodore Beza moved the discussion of predestination from Calvin's creedal form to a situation where the doctrine of predestination is formulated around the decrees of God, there was a much greater danger for falling into the error of ascribing to God responsibility for sin, especially Adam's original sin. End quote, page 16. Weir sees the prelapsarian covenant with Adam as, quote, a means by which Orthodox Calvinists of the late 16th century, some of whom adopted the Beeson form of explaining predestination, could maintain the tension between prelapsarian Adamic human responsibility and divine sovereignty, end quote, page 16. However, the prelapsarian covenant of works should not be seen as a device for softening the absolute sovereignty of God, quote, late 16th century Reformed theology taught that God, in his mercy and providence, condescended to Adam in a way that was comprehensible to him, that is, in terms of covenant. This covenant gave moral responsibility to Adam, and yet it was also the means by which the sovereign decrees of God concerning Adam were carried out. 
For the Calvinist, of whatever variety, the prelapsarian covenant with Adam did not, quote, soften, unquote, the decrees of God concerning the fall. Rather, it affirmed it, expanded it, explained it, and worked it out, end quote, page 16. Weir next examines secondary sources which deal with the history of the prelapsarian covenant. This brings us to the end of the introduction, which covers 50 pages in all, almost a third of the text since the last 84 pages of the book comprise a bibliography and index. Weir's thesis is set forth in the introduction and, in the following chapters, the historical development of the federal theology is examined. In chapter 1, Weir considers the lexicographical and biblical treatment in the 16th century of the various words used in connection with the idea of covenant, berith, diathike, fudis, and testamentum. The surprising conclusion here is that Sebastián Castello, remembered mainly for his religious toleration and humanistic liberalism, seems to have been a catalyst in the development of the federal theology. In his Latin translation of the Bible, he abandoned the word testamentum as a translation of the Hebrew berith and the Greek diatheke in favour of furthest. Thus in Matthew 26, 28, he translates the Latin Vulgate, hic est enim sanguis meus novi testamenti, end quote. This is truly my blood of the New Testament as hic est enim sanguis meus novi furtheris. This is truly my blood of the New Covenant. The only time Castello uses testamentum is in Hebrews 9, quote, He changes all the instances of testamentum in the Vulgate Old Testament to Ferdus. What he did contradicted the translators of the Septuagint, for he affirms that the Ferdus expresses Berith better than testamentum or diatheke does, and that Berith is an Old Testament concept which has been obscured by diatheke and which is illuminated by Ferdus. End quote, page 59. As Weir comments, quote, the most hotly disputed works of the 16th century had been altered. Such a radical break with centuries of tradition could not fail to go unnoticed. End quote. Weir sees it significant that Zacharias Orzinus, the first Reformed theologian to propose a prelapsarian covenant, visited Castillo at Basel, quote, just as he, Orzinus, was making the decision to leave the Lutheran fold and join the High Calvinists, end quote. This visit also, quote, coincided with the height of the burning controversy over God's sovereignty and Adam's fall, unquote, which, ironically from the point of view of the subject under discussion, quote, pitted men like Castillo against Calvin and Beza, end quote. Chapter 2 deals with the predestinarian controversies of the decade between 1550 and 1560, in which Castello played a large part. Here Weir contends that, quote, the doctrine of a furthest with Adam developed in response to this problem, that is, the problem of reconciling God's providential sovereignty and Adam's fall, SCP, as a milder orthodox elaboration and explanation of the seemingly harsh decretal doctrines of Theodore Beza, end quote, page 63. However, this does not follow necessarily. Why is the federal theology a milder theology? It does nothing to mitigate the supposed harshness in God's decrees as formulated by Beza. 
Oddly, Weir has already admitted in the introduction, quote, the prelapsarian covenant with Madam did not soften the decree of God concerning the fall. Rather, it affirmed it, expanded it, explained it, and worked it out. End quote, page 16. Weir goes on to contradict himself again on this point when he writes, quote, In his technical theological treatises, Zionist is careful to assert God's absolute sovereignty, even over the fall, along with a denial of God's responsibility for evil. At the same time, he wants to explain how the fall happened. The prelapsarian covenant in creation does not mitigate the decree of God respecting the fall. It merely explains it more fully. End quote, page 108. It is difficult to see why, in the light of these statements, Weir contends also on page 63 that the prelapsarian covenant was a milder explanation of the seemingly harsh decretal doctrines of Beza. While the prelapsarian covenant explains more fully the relationship between God and man and thus throws light on how the fall occurred, it does nothing to soften the decree of God respecting the fall. Chapter 3 deals with the prelapsarian covenant as proposed by Orsinus. This is the first stage in the growth of the federal theology. Chapters 4 and 5 look at the second stage in the growth and development of federal theology, namely its rise in three key reformed schools in the German Rhineland, Heidelberg, Neustadt an der Hart, and Herborn in Nassau. After 1590, the federal theology becomes much more widely integrated into the thinking of reformed theologians. Following this, there is a brief conclusion. Weir sums up his argument, quote, The early federal theology between 1560 and 1590 developed in two stages. The first culminated in 1562 after a tumultuous decade of discussion about how Adam's sin worked into God's plan and could be reconciled with God's nature. The second stage is 1584 to 1590 when the idea was developed and combined with the remistic system of organisation by such men as Dudley Fenner. Since the Romistic system was dominated by dichotomies, the covenant of grace started to appear as a foil to the covenant of works. After 1590, the idea of the prelapsarian covenant appeared all over Reformed Protestant Europe, and the whole area of covenant thinking took on a special importance in all areas of life in the 17th century. End quote. Page 158. Furthermore, quote, the rise of the federal theology has nothing to do with sacramental theology, the theology of church and state and their internal and external relationships, the threat of polygonism or the morphology of conversion. Its rise came primarily as a result of the questions about God, his nature and his relationship to man and the universe. It seems to stem from systematic, dogmatic thinking not from exegetical study of scripture. None of the 16th century commentaries on Genesis chapters 1 to 3 mention the prelapsarian covenant until after 1590. Federal theology did have significant implications, however, which, according to Weir, were sometimes more important and far-reaching than its origins. The theology of the sacraments the relationship between church and state, the morphology of conversion, the problem of Pelagianism, the doctrine of creation and the subsequent rise of science, the celebration of the Christian Sabbath, the doctrine of justification and Christian ethics are all areas 
in which the federal theology would leave its mark during the 17th and 18th centuries. End quote. Claims Weir, page 158. The relationship between the church and the state was just one area where the implications of Christian thought had very significant and far-reaching effects in England only 50 years after the cut-off date for Weir's study. These implications affected not only how people thought about this relationship, but also the nature of the English constitution. The development of federal theology in the late 16th century should not be underestimated as a contributing factor to the Christian worldview that produced such changes, but it is doubtful that Weir has identified in the Prelapsarian Covenant of Works the crucial factor in the development of the Puritan doctrine of the state. I found this book a fascinating read. The introduction is highly stimulating, though perhaps the material could have been organised a little better. But this is a small point overall. More problematic is Weir's identification of the law as coterminous with the Covenant of Works. For the federal theology, the law was, of course, an important part of the Prelapsarian Covenant. But to identify the law and the Prelapsarian Covenant as coterminous is incorrect. This is a fundamental flaw in Weir's understanding of federal theology, and thus in his argument. This flaw also throws considerable doubts on his use of the state-church relation as a valid example for his argument. And since he does not give other examples, it is difficult to determine whether and to what extent he is correct in his claims for the extensive implications of federal theology. For example, Weir claims that federal theology had implications for the doctrine of creation and the rise of science. The biblical doctrine of creation was fundamental to the worldview that led to the rise of science in the 17th and 18th, in the 17th and 18th centuries. But it is doubtful that federal theology was a vital factor in this doctrine or that it had the significant implications that Weir suggests. Although this was a fascinating read and highly informative on the historical development of federal theology, Weir has fundamentally misconstrued his subject matter at an important point and, consequently, a good part of his thesis does not hold up or, at least, has not been proved. This part of Weir's thesis needs to be researched further and rewritten, therefore. This is rather disconcerting since the book had its origins in a doctoral thesis submitted to St Andrews University in 1984, and one would have expected that this major flaw would have been discovered and ironed out before the degree was awarded. The doctoral thesis also won a prize from the American Society of Church History. This audio version of Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio with LRNTeach.com and narrated by Nathan Conkey. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio podcast network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.